0: It's good to be back with y'all, uh, have a chance to open God's Word with you, and uh, man, just pray that God will be glorified uh, in our midst as we have an opportunity to do that. And and you know, it's kind of funny, uh, I broke down 1 Corinthians a number of months ago, just kind of going verse by verse uh, as we do. And, and so I landed on this passage on head coverings, and I was kind of joking around with, uh, Jesse and Justin, giving them opportunities to preach. And I went into Jesse's office and said, look, I've been laying this down, and so this is going to be your week. And this is months ago. And he said, oh, okay, cool, no problem. And then he looked at it and he said, man, I was looking at that passage. That's really weird. Am I really preaching that day? I said, no, I was just, I was just kidding. Um, but, but it would have been great if one of them had picked this up. Um, they didn't, and, and so this is what we've got. Uh, I, I just want to read the passage, and then we're going to take an opportunity to walk through this because I feel like it's really remote for us. I feel like it's a long ways from us uh, culturally as we try to wrap our minds around it, so it's not this thing that we read and we say, "Oh, I get that that's obvious. let me just let me walk in line with that so let's let's read uh chapter eleven verses two through sixteen, and then i 'll say a couple of words to set it up a little bit, and then we'll 'll we'll offer some commentary, okay. Africans are a lot more communicative. <laughs> um, so, I missed that. Okay. <clears throat> Starting at verse 2. There, now you're there. Okay. Uh, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every uh, wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as, as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair, shave her head, uh, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That seems obvious, right? Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Uh, Let's just pray and go home. (laughs) There you go. Uh, There's this uh, famous tale of... Of John Wesley, who he was out preaching, and he said, I've got a short sermon for you. He read uh, Matthew 5, and then he sat down, and they're like, okay, we get that. I don't feel like somehow the same thing uh, would apply here to 1 Corinthians 11. So let me just kind of reframe the setting, kind of where we are in this book. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, You guys had an awesome, awesome opportunity to hear from Jesse and Justin on the cost of following Jesus. I'm so thankful to God for them and for their ministry to you. But as we were like just finishing up chapter 10, notice that he kind of opened up the discussion again of meat sacrifice to idols, and he's talking about what it's like to live life in community. And so you're out and you're buying goods in the marketplace, and, and you have the freedom to do that. But if you find out that it's meat sacrifice to idols, you shouldn't do that because of what it says about your relationship to Jesus, right? And so there's this kind of external cultural appropriation that they have to engage in. They have to be sensitive to the needs of kind of where everybody is around them spiritually. Well, what he's going to do here in chapter 11 is he's turning his focus and he's looking internally to the church and specifically to the aspect of corporate worship. So it's as if Paul says, okay, uh, Rich Christ, when you guys showed up here this morning, when you walked into the cafeteria, there's, there's something for you, but there's something for us. And so honestly, a lot of us as Americans walk in and I want something for me. I want something to get out of it. I want something kind of this low-hanging fruit I can grab, I can take home, and I can immediately apply. And a lot of us fail to realize that when we gather together, there is something for us. There's some, some, somebody beside you hurting. There's somebody beside you rejoicing. And what we see is the one who is, who is sorrowful, the one who's rejoicing can come together and can be glad in the Lord together because we're brothers and sisters in Christ together. And that's, that's what we do corporately. And so corporately we come and we worship. Corporately we come and we display the manifold glory of God. And we can only do that together as a group of people all leaning in dependent upon the Holy Spirit and with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so he's turning and he's focusing and he's walking through this, but it feels so incredibly remote for us because as I just look out here, either a a lot of you women are loose or you just decided that head coverings aren't good. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Close to home, some of you. Right? And so we read this and we say, this is distant. This is remote. I don't really understand. Now, I I attended two different, well, a couple of different churches, but, but two very different cultural gatherings. And so when we first landed, we went to go visit the Hucks, and we're in Georgia, and we land at 3.45 in the morning, and Jake death marched us right up until time for church. And we go to church, and it's very Western. I mean, people from India are leading the worship, but it's very Western-centric. Uh, this guy from Canada got up and taught, and, and so I'm sitting there, I'm just kind of in the moment, and I dropped my phone because I fell asleep. And so like, but... But I mean, it's very, very just like makes sense. It was just like being at church here for some of you. Um, but then when we arrive, when we arrive in Africa, it's, it's completely distinct and different. We had a couple of opportunities to attend different cultural gatherings. Uh, one uh, apparently turned out to be a funeral. I didn't realize that until afterwards. But we're there, and at this funeral, you've got all the men seated in this one area, and off to the side you have all the women seated. And I thought. Okay, that's, that's just kind of different. And then we went to a unity service. There's a soldier who had come home from the war, and all these various tribes are gathering and, and talking about the fact that they finally have peace, and they hope peace is sustainable. And at this gathering, too, there's all the men seated in one area, and then all the women uh, seated off in a different spot. And then I had a chance to, to preach on Sunday over there, and it's the same thing. So there's, there's all the women sitting over here to this side, and then there's all the men seated on the other side. And then there's these uh, little boys who just dance the whole time down in front, and so that was, that was awesome. And so, but every single one of them in those instances in Africa, all the women were covered. All of them had, had their head covered. Now I want you to think about how culturally inappropriate it would be for one of those, you know, just kind of... Uh, really just kind of up-and-coming and modernizing women to walk in and say, forget this, I'm sitting with the men. And so she were to walk in and she were to plop down and she were to sit there and they'd say, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you doing? Because culturally it would make no sense. And her presence in that place, her presence sitting in that deal, not being separated, would be a distraction in the midst of worship and so the whole time we would be worshiping everybody would be looking back and saying uh, what's up with sister Betsy why is she sitting over there what, what's what's going on with her she's not sitting where she needs to sit because she'd be doing something as a violation of their culture now when Paul's talking about head coverings here and he's applying it to those in Corinth he looks at their culture he looked at something not just for the church culture, but for the broader Corinthian culture. And he culturally, he brings that cultural adaptation and he articulates it. He applies it within the confines of their church. Now, this is why this is important. As they were kind of out in community and, and going to, to the shops or just going out and visiting people, walking on the streets, all the women would have their head covered. Because that's what they did in the first century. But when they would gather in their homes, they would relax, just like uh, many of you do. When, when I'm in my house, I put on a pair of gym shorts and a t-shirt, and I kick back, and, and I'm relaxed. But that would be odd, right, today, if I were wearing a pair of gym shorts and just kind of kicking back, relaxing, uh-huh, that's good stuff, what's on TV? That wouldn't be appropriate. And so because their churches were gathering in homes, they weren't gathering in buildings, they didn't have that luxury, they didn't have that opportunity, there had been a relaxation by some, and apparently by some of the women. So that when they gathered in these homes, and some of the men, they'd walk in the home, they'd see a woman uh, with her head uncovered. It was scandalizing. And they weren't sure what they should do and how they should operate. So Paul wants them to know that there are certain cultural distinctions that they have to maintain so as not to be a distraction in the church. And we can think of a number of things that we could do here today or keep from doing that by virtue of the fact that if we do them, we are distraction to others. Imagine if, if back in the back, Charles's phone rings and he answers it right in the middle of preaching. And he's like, oh, it's okay. He's having a separate conversation. That would be a, a distraction. And we would say that's wholly inappropriate. But I'll tell you that, that while I was preaching uh, last week in Africa, that's totally culturally acceptable. There is no phone etiquette. I had Africans tell me, we have no phone etiquette. Hold on a second. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> I was like... You understand the problem, then let's work towards fixing it. And so I just want to make that distinction. Another thing that I think the ESV is going to make difficult for us is that you'll see the translators of the ESV switch from wife to woman and from man to husband. Now the NIV, I think, gets this much closer to a better translation because the word that they're translating for wife is the same word in the Greek, that stands for woman. So, gunikos. And the same word for man is being translated as husband. And so, I'm just going to kind of walk through these and my understanding how these things work because it works best if we just understand them generically to be woman and generically to be man. Okay? Is that enough? Okay. Yeah. There we go. So, life inside the church. Let's walk through a couple of these things and just look at, at what's going on. So, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and, and you'll remember thus far, Paul's been pretty sore at them. They, they've done a lot of kind of boneheaded things. They've done a lot of things that Paul's had to come in and clarify and, and try and shake them up and help them understand that things are doing are inappropriate. But in verse 2, look what he says Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions that even as I delivered them to you. So there's some subset of teaching that Paul spent uh, on the church there in Corinth that they're applying, they're doing the right things, they're going through the right motions in some sense, but he wants them to understand <clears throat> that whether or not he expressly described to them the cultural norms of their society, that they still need to abide by this head covering thing because it is a distraction to those in their midst. And so he, he illuminates, he gives more explanation to this. Look what he says in verse 3. I want you to understand that ahead of every man is Christ, uh, every uh, woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what he's not talking about is source. He doesn't say uh, uh, that 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 every man finds his source in Christ, and every woman finds her source in man. But he's talking about uh, the issue of kind of priority, and, and you will see this more explicit when he gets into the issue of creation, because what we see in our God, is that our God is eternal, and he dwells in Trinity eternally, right? So it's not within the Christian confine of understanding that God the Father is sitting there, and he's like, oh, I'm so bored, but i going to do it. Let me just kick out the Holy Spirit. Let me just kick out Jesus. We see that God dwells in Trinity perfectly eternally, So all of eternity, we have God the Father, we have Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit. And so what he's describing here is that that man finds his headship in Christ. and, And because woman has come through man, in some sense, she finds her headship in man. But this is the same thing with Christ. So we see this idea of kind of functional subordination that we all have various roles to play, that none of us get to be reign and superior and high and mighty and exalted because just as we see that Christ is functionally subordinate, he is serving a role unto the Father, right? So we have this complementarity. Men and women, we complement one another. All of creation doesn't perfectly display the glory of God in either man or woman, but we display God's glory perfectly together. Well, look at 4 and 5. He's going to describe a couple of actions. <clears throat> he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And he's going to flip into the inverse about the woman. So why is it a dishonor for the man if he covers his head? Well, there's this wonderful statue of Emperor Augustine, Augustus, and he has his head covered. And so he takes his toga and he pulls his toga up over his head right as he's prepared to offer a libation, right as he's getting ready to offer a drink sacrifice. And so one of the things this shows us is that culturally, in the first century, when men would cover their head, it would be for the express purpose of engaging in cultic worship, idol worship. And so if they were to see Brent walk into the room and all of a sudden Brent's got his toga on for whatever reason and he takes his toga and he flips it up over his head, it'd be obvious and say, oh, Brent's engaged in idol worship. What in the world is he doing in Jeff's living room doing that? He's confusing things for people. And so he says to the man, he said, look, you can't do this because anytime somebody sees you out and they see you dressed in this way, they're going to think that that you're not worshiping the Christian version of God. You're worshiping one of these kind of polytheistic gods. You're worshiping some God of the Romans. And so when you do this, you dishonor Jesus and you confuse everybody around you. You're an incredible distraction in the midst of corporate worship. Don't do this. The man says, okay, I won't do this. Well, some of the women who culturally should have been covering their heads because it gave them a sense of modesty. It tied them, if they're married, to their husband. And it was appropriate and understood. Some of these women, they weren't covering their heads. And so it says, But every wife or every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And look what he says. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, if a woman were to shave her head or to have her hair kept close to her head, it meant that she was either an adulteress or a prostitute. And so she was uh, a woman who was doing inappropriate things within their community, and we would say within our community. And this would be like, uh, wearing a, a very bright name badge or very you know this is her costume oh look at that shaved head whoa what's going on and so this is their assumption so you can imagine how distracting this was in the middle of worship that they come in and like hey guys how's jesse hey brent how's it going hey jeff oh my word are you here to repent right and she's like what do you mean am i here to repent this is my living room he's like whoa what goes on in your living room he said, "When she can't do this, because when she does this, the cultural understanding is she's either a prostitute or she's an adulteress. She's done something to be ashamed of, but she's showing no appropriate response to this shame." Now look at the beautiful thing here. What are the two actions that both the man does and the woman does? It seems that Paul says these people are playing a central role in the worship service. Same actions. So you've got this guy, he's praying and he's prophesying. You've got this woman, she's praying, she's prophesying. So if you're to read this passage and walk away and say that this passage stands for the subjection of women, that this passage sees women as somehow inferior to men, then clearly you read these verses and you say, no, they're engaged in the same actions. We see this woman playing a central and vital role in the midst of the service. And so they're gathered as a body and she stands up and she prays. And I can tell you some of the most moving memories that I have and just experiences I have of prayer are when a woman has stood and prayed because God has poured his spirit out on her and the words spill through her in a way that they don't do something. Because she's in touch and she's channeling and she's, she's sensing God and reading scripture in a way that I just can't approach and can't understand. And this is what's taking place in their gathering. And he said, and this woman's prophesying. So the spirit of God has come upon her in such a way that when she opens her mouth and speaks, people recognize they're hearing a word from the Lord. And so you hear this and say, well, this seems distant. This seems remote. Should I feel this? Should I trust this? I don't know. I've primarily been in churches that, that are just kind of, kind of androcentric, kind of male-centric. What I want you to understand is the totality of Scripture gives us a repeated illustration and beautiful depiction of God's stunning movement in the lives of women, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Exodus fifteen twenty gives us a picture of Aaron's sister Miriam, who's spoken of as a prophetess, somebody whom God spoke to and God used as a conduit for speaking to others. In Judges 4 4, we read of Deborah, who was not just a judge, and so she's not just kind of this military leader, but she was also functioning as a prophetess. But look at the one in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, his parents, uh, Jesus' parents, go to present him to uh, the temple. They go to the priest to present him, and there's this amazing word. For Simeon, who says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. But along there in the same place, there's a prophetess, Anna. Not Jesse's wife, but a different Anna. And look what it says about her. It says, and there was a prophetess the daughter of Thaniel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years uh, from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Listen to the zealous nature of this woman's relationship with God. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting of prayer night and day. It said, virtually you couldn't show up without seeing Anna in the temple. She was always there, always worshiping God. And this is what he did. And coming up at that very hour, so the very time Simeon's kind of communicating these things, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Think about this moment. Jesus' parents bringing him up there. Simeon said this word, and they're just, they're taking it in. This is hard, this is hard to understand. And then Anna comes up, and she begins to testify to the goodness and graciousness of God, and to proclaim of the coming redemption of all humanity. Women play a key and indispensable role in the kingdom of God. And for us to fail to recognize that and to utilize that says so much more about our failings than it does any type of inadequacy in them. So every woman who does this honors her dad. Let us reverence and find greater ways to use women in our worship. Look what he goes on to say. He's going to spill this out. He says, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. And he's going to say, don't actually do that, though. Since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, shave her head, let her cover her head. So now he's going to relate it to creation. He's going to relate it to creation. He says, for a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. In essence, he's, he's giving us this picture from Genesis, right? Where man is created, and then, la- and then after that, God creates woman from man. <clears throat> Listen to him explain it a little clearer. Verses 8 and 9. He says, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Let's look at Genesis. Let's look at 126 and 27, and then we'll flip over to chapter 2. So you'll notice the personableness of God. He's created all things, light from dark, sea from dry land. He created the animals. He created the plants. And then you get into chapter 1 and verse 26, and he says, And the Lord God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. God has invested in humanity His image and His likeness. He's invested in humanity an uh, uh, understanding and awareness that there's something greater, and that something greater is God. So He created His own, his own image, and in the image of God, He created them male, and female, He created them. What we recognize in Genesis 2 is that God had been moving and He'd be creating all of the animals he created Adam. He brought all the animals to Adam. He said, "What's this called?" An and Adam said, "I'm running out of names here. Let's call it an bark. <laughs> what about that one? Uh, Duckbill duck, uh, platypus. God's like, "Golly, these names are ridiculous." Why did I give you this? And so He's creating all these things and all these animals, and all He's running through the taxonomy. And then He then He comes in and He says, "Look, there's there's nobody fit for you. There's nobody fit for you. I've formed all of these." animals, but, but it's, it's, there's nothing for you. And God says incredibly profound words. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper, a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So Adam was alone. Recognize that God dwells in perfect community in the Trinity. But here Adam was dwelling alone. So the Bible tells us that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up the place of the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. Now from what did God make man? Everybody say dirt. Everybody say dirt. I didn't say, like, say, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You are know, like, huh? And so God formed man out of dirt. And from what did God fashion woman? Everybody say man. There you go. Wow. First question was more difficult, I suppose. And so he, he, he forms man out of dirt. He forms woman from man. And so what we see this is that we are interdependent upon one another. There's this beautiful creation thing that God has done here. He says, man's not uh, made from woman, but woman from man. And man's not created for woman, but woman for man. So God gives us this wonderful picture of gender clarity. Do you recognize that, that, that gender, here it's described in Genesis, is, is, is not some fluid stance whereby we're determining later, later in life where we feel most, most comfortable. So in some sense, we find that biblically, the Bible is speaking to gender dysphoria, right? This gender confusion that some people are suffering with and some people are struggling with. And, you know, what has God made me to be? I find that, that my, my gender is in direct correspondence to how God has created me. So he's created me to be man, so I understand myself as male. He's created my wife to be a woman, so she understands herself to be female. And so we find that the Bible gives us an amazing opportunity to come close to those who are struggling with transgenderism and dysphoria, gender dysphoria, and to speak compassionately to them. Not that we heap uh, things and say, so this is the most ridiculous thing we've ever heard. Gender's not a fluid thing. It's static and it's controlled. And we recognize that gender is pre-fall, but what we've done with gender and all the various mess that we've made up of it is a condition of the fall. Now, as Christians, we've gone horribly wrong several different times within our manifestation of church within the American world. We've found people that struggle with homosexuality, and we've said, the church doesn't want you. Get out. Go away. You're an aberration of creation. You're the worst thing in the world. I want nothing to do with you. And so what we've done in that setting is we've cut off our ability to be gracious and kind and redemptive. And they say we're bigoted, and we're hateful, and we were. And I'm telling you, we're going to lose the same opportunity to point to the beauty of the gospel if we don't go towards people who are struggling with the identity of gender, something at the very core of who they are, with the grace and loving kindness of our God instead of the hate and small-mindedness that is so much easier to articulate, but so much farther from the heart of our God. Do you see what he's saying here? God finds people in the first century struggling with how to identify freedom in Christ and appropriate that, uh, to take that appropriately manifested in their culture. And today we find the same thing. It's so much easier, I would tell you, to be small-minded and distant than open-minded, compassionate, and close. But The gospel gives us no other choice. Think of this blessing. When you were lost, and whatever your sin was, okay? Like you, you thought you were good enough and the gospel showed you your corruption and your brokenness. You thought you were whole enough and the gospel showed you how your heart was piecemeal and broken. Or you're living in some, something that we would say, that's egregious sin. Like You should have recognized that. In all of those places, the goodness and loving kindness of our God found you. In finding you, it rescued you. And rescuing you, it moved you from death to life. From being lost to being found. From darkness to light. We want to be about the same things. So when we find people that we're tempted to be... uh, What's the word? It begins with an R. It makes us sick to our stomach. Revolse? Revile? revulsed, Repulsed. Wow. (laughs) Normally that word would have been... My tongue right there, but instead cough drop stopped it. When we are tempted to be repulsed by what we see, let us remember that all of our sin is vile, that all of our sin is dirty and despicable, but in God's graciousness, he comes close to us. We see the beauty of the gospel in every person who's redeemed. And we see an opportunity for his beauty to be displayed In the most disgusting form of sin you and I can imagine, right? Whatever it is that you think is disgusting, God has plans and purposes for that person. And maybe what he's using is you to come close to that person to show the goodness and loving kindness of our God up close to them. Let our homes and hearts be open and ready to invest in the lives of those we would otherwise disagree with and discard. So Paul has probably the, the most clear verse in this whole passage in verse ten. He says, "That's why my wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels." So moving on to verse eleven. <laughs> right. I, 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 so I took a terrific number of commentaries with me, uh, some of which I actually read uh, while I was gone, and they would say like surprisingly unhelpful things like, "This is really complicated." It's like that's why I'm reading you. Um, but one of the things they would say over and over again, uh, almost universally, that I just really appreciate is that this is one of these open-handed verses. Let's not be dogmatic on this. And there are a number of things we can come to in the text and say, let's not be dogmatic. Because dogma- dogmatism gives an opportunity for pride to display itself. And there's no pride in my, uh, well, there's no pride in a lot of what I'm doing today. But there's certainly no pride... Uh, captivated and caught up in my explanation of this verse that seems incredibly tertiary and different, just remote and, and God is sovereign. His word is inspired and infallible and inerrant. But this is just weird. And so verse 10, let me just take a stab at it, okay? So said, that's why my wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Apparently the church in Corinth had some big problems, but they thought this was obvious because Paul didn't explain it anymore. So the authority of the woman, this head covering, her, her, her head being man and Christ and up to God, he said that she has to wear this because of the angels. Now, I think this is the closest we can get to it, or certainly the closest I can. And, and I'm going to use a couple of verses to support this. If we fundamentally understand angels to be servants of God, right? so we recognize that a third of the angels fell, and those are referred to in the Bible as demons. This isn't an understanding of Sometimes demons involved in their worship. He's talking about ministering spirits. Hebrews 1.14 says, speaking of the angels, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are busy serving God by administering his word and, 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 and performing spiritual battle on our behalf, it would seem. And then in... In uh, First Peter, we recognize that he's talking about salvation and just how amazing salvation is, and like you need to understand the place you're at in history. You see redemption unveiled. There's no ambiguity to salvation from where you sit, positionally in history. And he's talking about how great this is, and he says, "You need to understand how great this is. That the good news announced to you, which has been preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven." These are things that angels long to look at. So the mysteries and the providence of God was kept back from the angels, but they waited with anxious anticipation, much like a parent who's purchased their child something amazing for Christmas, and it's wrapped inside the box, and inside that is another box, and inside that is another box. And as you watch them open, you're getting excited and you're getting amped up. This is the angels' response to us responding to salvation. They long to see us respond so that they might rejoice. We see that in Luke 15. We see that elsewhere. But look at Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 says this is what we do together. This is what happens when we gather corporately. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known. When we worship together, we reveal the manifold wisdom of God. I don't know what position you came in this morning. Maybe you stumbled in here. Maybe you're looking uh, for a new church. Maybe you're just looking for some help. Maybe you're looking for a break. But when we gather corporately, we're displaying the manifold wisdom of God to what end? He said so greatly, so mightily, that it might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So as we gather here together, there's this invisible thing that's transpiring, that that angels are watching, that they see it. They're not seeing to your innermost core. They're not seeing your inner motivations, but they're seeing our worship take place. So there in Corinth, when he said, look, you have angels looking in and watching your worship, and they can see some of you dressed in such a way that disgraces God or brings attention to yourself. And when we gather for worship, it's not an opportunity to make people focus on me. It's an opportunity for us to focus on him. And anything we do to make corporate worship about our individual expression or our desire for individual attention, instead of us corporately investing in all of those around us, making it all about him, dishonors God and the angels or audience to that. So he says, this is why a woman has to wear a head covering. So that the angels don't see her do something, it would be a disgrace and a dishonoring to God. Look at the interdependent nature of man and woman in verse 11 and 12. He says, nevertheless, in essence, look, all the stuff I said before, uh, withstanding, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. He wants them to understand, hey, look, don't, don't head in the wrong direction by subjugating women. Don't head in the wrong direction by saying women uh, are, are, are only applicable you know, to kind of be seen but not heard. They can't have any hand in leading, guiding, and directing. They're not really valuable. They're just kind of there for window dressing. He said, you need to understand the interdependent nature, the complementarity of man and woman. So we see that, that only the image of God is only perfectly, most beautifully displayed, not in just man, not in just woman, but in man and woman together. The genders together display God in his grace. The genders together display God in his glory. And so we need one another, or the human race would come crashing to a halt, and would do that quickly. So Paul begins to wrap up. He says, judge for yourselves. And he asks uh, what he would hope at this point would be a rhetorical question. Is it proper for a wife to pray or a woman to pray with her head uncovered? He's hoping they would all say no because he's given them such a wealth of understanding and all this various argumentation for understanding it. And he says, well, just in case you're not there yet, let me give you a point from nature. And by nature, he doesn't mean uh, looking at the animals. He means just kind of common conception in, in their culture and in their community that you see men with shorter hair and you see women with Longer hair. Verse, uh, latter half of verse 15, or all of verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. For if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I just want to stop there for a second. We have a, a, a passage in 2 through 15. It is distant and remote from us culturally. It's hard to understand how head coverings can be applicable in the 21st century or at least in the 21st century in Greenville, Texas. But there are any number of things that you could do that will be a distraction for other people in worship. And there are any, any number of things that we can do during the week that can be a distraction or can be a discouragement To your brothers and sisters in this church or some other church. You know, every week we have it as a matter of practice to pray for the other churches of our community. And we do this because we fundamentally believe that we can never reach all the people in Greenville as one body. Like, we don't think that Ridgecrest stands for the salvation of our community. We think that God has given his grace to the churches of our community for our community's good and for his glory. And so we pray for them and we want to be unified with them. But it is so difficult to do this because it's hard to see success in one church and not yours. And it's, it's hard to see failure in one church and, and, and not be compelled to want to find out what's going on and say, it's the pastor, isn't it? He is a schmuck. But God gives us this wonderful opportunity to intercede for one another. He gives us this wonderful opportunity not to be contentious, not to be discouraging, but to work for the building up of the saints, to build up people here and to build up people elsewhere. And and, and I just want to kind of pastorally hit on something. We're we're kind of right in the middle of February, I think. <clears throat> and the end of next month, we're going to be coming back to our building, right? God has been doing something amazing in our midst, in our hearts, in this body since we've been here at Bowie. Like when we came over, we had people say, look, this just isn't for me. When you guys are back in the building, then I'll come. <laughs> like, I get that. I totally, I don't agree with that, but I do understand that. And so there's a couple of temptations that are kind of rolling around. One is that when we come back, if new people were to come, we say, where were you? Like, who were you when we were not in this building? You're just coming because of the building. And for sure, people are going to come just because of the building. But hasn't it always been about having the building as a tool? Hasn't it always been about wanting to glorify God, use this thing as a tool? Not this kind of field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. But if they come, we will use it. Can we be an encouragement to those around us? Can our evangelism be more about, man, it's great. We're getting ready to move back into our building. You should come see it. Can it, be, can it be less about that and more about Jesus? Like, who cares? I for sure don't care if they come to Ridgecrest. Like, there are enough of you, and you have enough problems. I am at capacity. <laughs> it was great to meet some of the Africans and hear their problems and be like, I got five days, and that's somebody else's issue. man, if we could just be passionate about sharing the gospel, passionate about extending Jesus, not passionate about a building, not passionate about our programs, but passionate about a Jesus who changed our hearts, who owns our lives, and who calls us all to radical faithfulness, are we going to be people in town who are contentious? Are we going to be people in God, uh, of God in town who are covered by his grace and extending his love everywhere we go? I think the choice is clear.